scripture this morning comes to us from 1 Kings chapter 19, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 16. Listen now for a word from God. At that place, Elijah came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel Malochah, as prophet in your place. This is God's word to us. Good and loving God, thank you for the story of Elijah. God, I pray whatever word you would have us here this morning, whatever wisdom that we might receive would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I appreciate that you talked about the Christmas spirit a little bit. Um, if you ever need something organized or done, if you just Sarah, a little bump of caffeine, <laughs> set her loose on a project. It's amazing, amazing results. Um, no, I, you know, I come from a family of um, workaholics. And, uh, it's, it's in my blood. It's probably in my daughter's blood. You know, I, I don't know what it is. It might be a, a cultural country thing, but um, we like working in this country, don't we? We love it. We, I think actually it's our form of worship and our liturgy. I don't have to make that argument this morning, but I think that's true. I think we work as a way of worship to whatever gods we're serving. My dad um, built this business from scratch. He was, he was a boat mechanic, and so he, you know, not necessarily the most successful by everyone's standards, but uh, very successful by an American standard. He started out of uh, his truck, this little old, like, Ford Ranger that he would he would work at a marina all day fixing other people's boats, and at night, his buddies would call him and say, hey, can you give me a little bit of help on this? 
their phones. Well, pretty soon he had enough capital and he was getting enough calls. He said, you know, I think I'm going to quit that job at the marina and I'll just drive around fixing everyone's boats. And so he got this van. And I'll never forget this van. It was a Ford, like, F-350 Econoline. You remember those? Yeah, I spent summers in that van. Uh, I helped him outfit that van so he could keep all his tools arranged in it and, you know, all the different parts that he had. He, he would drive that van all around you know, central Florida fixing other people's boats. And he would go sometimes from 6 a.m. until 9 p.m. Just enough time to come home, grab a shower, eat something, and then fall asleep as soon as his head hit the pillow. Pop up the next morning, do it all again. Pretty soon he outgrew the van and he had, uh, he had a building. And uh, the building started off, it was just a really small part of the building. It was actually the back corner of the building that no one really wanted to rent. And he just kind of offered the owner a little bit every month, and he grew the business from there. The, the business went to a giant warehouse where soon he's not just fixing boat motors, he's dealing boats, and he's dealing parts. And he's, he's got all these other things going on that I didn't even really know about, but he had all these different arms in his business. And he got to age 52, and I'll never forget, he called me. It's at the end of my seminary career, and he says, well, Garrett, I, I think I'm done. <laughs> and I, I said, well, wow, you're gonna retire at, at age 52. He goes, well, maybe you can call it retirement. More so, I, I, I'm done. And I can hear there's no celebration in his voice. He's not happy about this. He sounds broken. And I've never heard him sound so sad and defeated. And I'm thinking, gosh, he, your whole life, you're to the point you're, you're able to sell your business, you're, you're going to retire at 52, you can go golf, you can go fish, you can go do whatever you want to do, and he breaks down on the phone and he just says, pray for me. And for the next nine months, no one heard from him. And when I say no one heard from him, I mean no one heard from him, even the people living in his house, because he locked himself in the room, he refused to eat, he refused to talk to anybody, he refused anything and sort of went through a kind of, I think, sort of an exhaustion-induced breakdown, if that's a thing. He just hid in this cave. And a few of us were really wondering, me and my brother specifically, are kind of wondering, like, is he, he going to pop out of this? Or did he literally work himself to death? I think we've all maybe heard a story like this before, maybe not to that not to um, someone crawling into a room wondering if they're going to come out, but, uh, or maybe we've been in a season of life where we're so exhausted, and we didn't really know it until it just hit us all of a sudden, and then we're like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to stop what I'm doing. Have you been there? Have you been exhausted like this? Maybe not from work. It might be, it might be from kids. Kids, I only have one kid that's exhausted. <laughs> so we all ran multiple kids. I mean, you, maybe it was from kids, and Maybe it was from caretaking for anybody, really, in some Boston, right? It can be really, really hard. I think we've all been somewhere in our life where we've known someone that's just exhausted. And, and the tough thing about that is, as Americans, like, we live in a country that actually glorifies this behavior. So the more you work, the more you're exhausted, the more hours you put in, the more you seem to receive admire you, right? Oh my gosh, he's, he's the first one in, he's the last one out. 
oh my gosh, can you believe how she does it? She raises her family, she does this, she does that, she does everything. It's like she never has time for herself. We love these stories in this country. We idolize these people. And we think if we just keep hustling, 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 working, 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 we're going to find the healing and the salvation that we've been after our whole lives. Our story uh, picks up here with the prophet Elijah. And he's, he's maybe one of the more famous prophets from Scripture. You know, he appears a few different times. One time he's, he's at the transfiguration of Jesus, standing on uh, the other side of Moses. It's sort of this symbol of, like, Elijah is the prophet among prophets. And he's the prophet among prophets because he sort of does a lot of miracles, and he's very, very zealous for God. He's a very good prophet. And part of that is because of his circumstance. Elijah comes on the scene at the end of this really, really long line of terrible kings. And uh, Israel sort of only had bad kings, if you ask certain people. There, there were at least maybe two you could argue were okay. That was the first king, David. We still had his issue. Well, the second king, technically, because there was Saul. Saul didn't kick things off in the best ways. Um, then there was David, who was okay, but still had his issues. And then Solomon, who really grew the empire actually praised for his wisdom and all of the work that he did. But after Solomon, uh, if you read the book of 1 Kings, uh, it just kind of all goes downhill. And what you get is this litany of descriptions of kings, where it's like uh, this unpronounceable name, as you heard me uh, stumble through earlier. Unpronounceable name, uh, and was appointed king, so-and-so, and this king did evil in the Lord's sight. Unpronounceable name, so-and-so, was appointed king and did evil in the Lord's sight. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Until you get to Ahab. And then with Ahab, it's like he's the worst of the worst. And so he did great, great evil in the Lord's sight. And this is who Elijah is prophet to. is King Ahab. The worst of the worst. Now, the, the Bible describes kings as being evil for really two primary reasons. And you might argue with me on this, and I, I wouldn't push back a whole lot, but it, it's really just two primary reasons. One is they stop worshiping Yahweh. They move away from the temple that was instituted. They stop worshiping the God who sort of brought them to the point that they got to. They forget the past. They forget the old ways. And then the second thing that they're accused of they don't take care of the most vulnerable within their midst. They don't look out for the poor. They don't look out for the marginalized. They don't do the things that the law requires. And I would say this is connected to them not worshiping Yahweh anymore. Because you, you've heard me say probably you know more times than you care to count that the temple is established not just to worship God because God needs the gifts. God needs the offerings. The temple is established so that worship uh, for God can happen, but also so that resources can be redistributed to the community, so that those who have too much don't have way too much, and those who have too little don't have way too little. The temple and worship of God is meant to sort of even the playing field to make sure that the entire community of God's people is taken care of. So when a king is evil, 
They don't do these things. They're sort of selfish. They pay attention to their own needs. They fight wars that maybe they don't need to fight. They expand the empire at the sake of their own people. So when Elijah shows up, it's been years and years of this. Years and years of kings that don't worship God, don't take care of the poor, and things are just sort of out of control to the point that there's this major drought that happens, there's famine, there's great suffering from Elijah and his people, and no one seems to care. No one. Not the 450 other prophets that are living in the palace with Elijah at the time, not the king, not the kings before, not even really the people anymore, because they've sort of just accepted that this is how it is. Should we start taking bets on how long that takes? Can we do a quick fundraiser? I'll set the over-under on by the time I'm finished. Um, but Elijah arrives on the scene. There, there are more than enough prophets to go around, and no one's speaking against the injustice. And it, you know, it's funny. Mark Twain has this great quote that I read about, about in a, a different pastor's sermon. But Mark Twain apparently said that um, clergy are sort of like manure. And that uh, you don't want to keep too many of them clumped up in one place because it gets stinky and a little messy. <laughs> this is Mark Twain, not me. But if you spread them out, actually they can do maybe a little bit of good. And um, this pastor described this being Elijah's situation where he's one prophet amidst these 450 others and he's just sort of incensed that no one cares, that no one's doing their job. And so it's frustrating. And he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. And he's going to solve the world's problems. He's going to solve his people's problems. And he's going to do it right now. And so he uh, challenges all the other prophets to this different god called Baal. And Baal is really just a catch-all word that um, sort of refers to any other god that's not Yahweh. And you really could worship anyone else, but it's, it's just kind of signifying they didn't worship the one and Elijah, this lonely prophet who's still worshiping God, says, I want to challenge you all to a kind of prophetic duel, all 450 of you. And what we're going to do is, is we're going to set up these altars. I'll set up my altar, and I'll bring a sacrifice. And, and you set up your altar, and, and you bring a sacrifice. And then we're going to gather all the people around, and we're going to wait. And you're going to get the chance to call down fire from heaven from whatever God you worship. And then I'm going to take the chance to call down fire from heaven one true God, and whoever can do that first wins. Which seems like a really mature way to handle your problems. <laughs> so they, they set up this duel, and, and what ends up happening is the, the priests of Baal, they, they all kind of put their heads together for hours and hours and hours. They try and call down fire from heaven. It just doesn't work. And once they're finally exhausted and they've got no other ideas, they look at Elijah, and Elijah has kind of been sitting back knowing how the outcome is they say to Elijah, okay, it's your turn, go ahead. And then Elijah, to sort of taunt them, has water doused on top of his altar and his sacrifice three separate times to make sure that it's nice and wet. So that when he calls down fire from heaven and it's all consumed, they know who is the baddest prophet in town, I guess. I, I don't know what he's trying to refer to. And that's what he does. He has them doused in water three times and he calls down fire from heaven. And the whole thing is consumed, and everyone is standing there in awe, like, oh, 
This is a real kind of power. This is a real prophet. But something inside of Elijah still doesn't feel right. It didn't work the way he wanted it to work. It didn't do the thing. It didn't really change their mind. I mean, they're just going to go back to living the way that they're going to live. And Elijah senses this. God says, I want to give you some inspiration. He tells him to go outside. He's about to pass by. And when he passes by, he wants Elijah just to see his backside. Not the whole thing, not the front, not the most glorious, but just the backside. And so he does, and you hear there's, there's fire, there's earthquake, there's wind, the mountains are splitting, all of these things are happening. And then there's the sound of sheer silence. That's when Elijah goes out and he sees the backside of God pass by. And it's almost God's way of saying to him, Do you see how big I am? Do you see that you're not alone? Do you see that you've been trying to do this thing the whole time where you just work so hard to save yourself and all of your people and you try to solve all of the problems and you forget that you're just one part of a much, much bigger world? And you forget that even just looking at my backside is difficult for you. <laughs> and 
causes mountains to breathe. You forget, God says to Elijah, how big I am. You forget that you are not in control of your destiny. I am. And then he says to Elijah, who wants to die, who's exhausted, who doesn't have anything left, he says, it's okay. prophet to take over from you, and then go do what you need to do. God relieves Elijah of the burden that I think Elijah has actually just placed on himself. The idea that he has to take his salvation into his own hands, that he has to find a way to solve all the world's problems, that he has to fix, fix the, the issues of his institution that he's a part of. And God is saying, You've got friends. You've got community. <laughs> Is it down? <laughs> Those bets come in. <laughs> My dad did crawl out of his cave, um, and he's doing better, but he said to a group of us after we crawled out, he said, you know, uh, I think I worked a little too much. So, um, and, he, and he said to us, you know, I wish I would have taken more breaks. And he said to me, I wish I would have spent more time with you. And he said, he said to the whole family, I, I, I wish I would have been so preoccupied. You know, there's a lot of grace for him. And I'm, I'm sure many of us have been there. Maybe you've been there yourself where you're saying, oh gosh, I've, I've given so much to this, 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 and this. And I, I really wish I would have. But you know, he, he also had a pretty good attitude about it. He said, you know, I'm, I'm only 53 at that time. He said, you know, I'm only 53. And uh, I've got time to change this. And he's taken it. He's still kicking. I mean, he's found new hobbies, which is great. He, he likes to go to the woods and just kind of sit by himself, which, which is very opposite of how I knew him. He was always working. He was always around someone. He was always on the phone. And now all of that is gone.
time after time again in the scriptures. That's what we see. And so I wonder, this week, as we go about our work, our lives, our passions, I wonder if we could make just a little bit of time to reflect and think. You think I can time this perfectly? <laughs> speak to all of us, those that are